Up next, we've got an all-star global security panel. Not everything in the future of war and diplomacy is technology. A lot of times it's conflict between great powers and civilizations, and there's nothing like an incredibly experienced team of diplomats to bring their insight to all of you. And to introduce them, it's my pleasure to introduce Chief U.S. Commentator for the Financial Times and author of the excellent Retreat of Western Liberalism, Edward Luce. Mr. Luce, come on up. While he's walking, I'm just going to mash note the book one more time. It's really, really good. You should read it. Thank you very much. Thank, thanks for that very kind plug. Um, uh, it's, it's an enormous pleasure to um, uh, host, to moderate a, a stellar panel. I, I can't think of a better one to talk about the foreign policy issues, the sort of cat's cradle of, of headaches that um, we, we're observing today than the three that will be, be joining me in a moment. Jane Harmon, none of them need an introduction, so I'll be very brief. Jane Harmon, Congresswoman Harmon, is now president of the Woodrow Wilson Center and chief executive. Ten-term Congresswoman, or nine terms? Nine, I'm sorry. Um, and many other things. Um, uh, Bill Burns, William Burns, um, author of um, Back Channel, uh, a memoir of American diplomacy, which I think you'll be signing later, former Deputy Secretary, Ambassador to Moscow, many, many uh, uh, very um, august positions in American diplomacy over the last 30 years or so. And then the other Burns, Nick Burns, an equally um, uh, well-known luminary, um, head of, um, well, a professor of diplomatic practice at the Kennedy School of Government in Harvard, former State Department spokesman, NATO ambassador, ambassador to Greece, and many other things. So please um, join me on stage. What's the plan? Thank you. Um, let me start with a, a very simple question. And Jane, I'll start with you. Uh, last week, Joe Biden said that Donald Trump was an aberration with the implication being that if he is defeated next year, then in January 2021, America will go back to a pre-aberration America, um, or a post-aberration America, where Obama left off. First of all, is he an aberration? In the sense that he doesn't, he's a mistake in, in a way, he doesn't reflect what America is. And if he is an aberration, what will post-aberration America look like? How is it going to act on the world stage? I want each of you to answer, but I'm going to start with Jane. Well, you'll start with the least informed. Let me say that the, the Burns boys are the best there are in diplomacy and foreign policy. Um, I don't know if they're brothers, but they're both my brothers, so that's how it is. And uh, I had an, uh, a center where we, we have... Uh, uh, a, a, a vaunted foreign policy capacity, but these two are just as good as anybody we have or have had. They're just amazing, and I salute them. Uh, on this subject, I think Donald Trump is an aberration as a president. I mean, very different from anyone we've had, certainly in my lifetime. Um, and I think his foreign policy is personal. It's not a ideological foreign policy. I think 
uh, issue A is not linked to issue B, is not linked to issue C. He changes on a dime, and a lot of the communication of his foreign policy is by tweet, uh, which I think is a process that should never be recommended to his successor. Uh, but when you look at the recent course of U.S. foreign policy, certainly including Obama, uh, I think his foreign policy is um, uh, not so different. We have been retreating as a leader in the world for a while. Uh, certainly Obama was doing that and talked about at least a change in how the U.S. would deal with the Middle East. And uh, I, I don't agree with that. I think there is a gigantic role for U.S. leadership, especially in soft power everywhere. And I think the so-called liberal world order, which maybe needs a new name just because so many people don't know what it is and also don't like uh, the words, uh, should be uh, repurposed and rolled out again. Because I don't see any other place in the world uh, that has uh, the capacity to do what we have done, especially under leadership like uh, the Burns boys. Uh, a, a very interesting answer. Let me pick up on, um, on, on one element of it and throw it to the, the first of the Burns twins, Bill. Um, uh, you said that there is more continuity, essentially, between Obama and Trump than a lot of people like to admit. Um, uh, the fatigue that America's had with post 9 11, post Iraq war, with um, foreign wars, with being the world's policeman, etc., that implies that, except for everything else, his style, his character, his personality, that implies that Trump isn't such an aberration. Would, yeah. would, you, would you agree with the implication of Jane's answer? Yeah, well, first, it's great to be on stage with three people I respect so much. Um, no, I think President Trump is both an aberration and a symptom. Aberration for all the you know, reasons that Jane just explained very clearly, but a symptom in the sense that I think actually, to be honest, there's a pretty big disconnect within our own society that's been building over the last few administrations between people like me, card-carrying members of the Washington establishment, who went, when, right, when we preach the virtues of disciplined American leadership in the world, there are lots of Americans, at least in my experience, who don't need, be, need to be persuaded of the importance of disciplined engagement, but they're a lot more skeptical about the discipline part, because they've seen too many instances in administrations of both parties, but I think most particularly in Iraq in 2003, of overreach and indiscipline. And so it's a mistake to think that just seeing a new leadership in the White House is going to make all that go away. It's going to have to be addressed in a very honest way, I think. Nick, do you agree with that? I agree with, with Bill and Jane, and I'm happy to be here with you, Ed. I would say that the president is a significant departure, an aberration from President Obama and President George W. Bush, his two immediate predecessors, um, on alliances like NATO and our East Asian allies. This is the great power differential that we enjoy. Russia and China have no allies. The president is single-handedly weakening NATO. And he has not tended well, I think, to the relationships with Japan, South Korea, and Australia. On the multilateral trade system, which lifted billions of boats, you've written about it, in the post-World War II era, he's trying to dismantle it. Uh, on immigration and refugees, where we've been taking in about a million legal immigrants a year for, for 55 years and about 70,000 refugees for a half century a year. He is slashing legal immigration and slashing by two-thirds refugee admittance when there are 68 million refugees in the world today. 
And finally, and most notably, if you think of Ronald Reagan or the presidents that Bill and I serve, the and members that Jane serve with, our presidents have always stood up for democracy. And right now, the existential issue in Europe is the rise of the anti-democratic populace. Guess who's invited to the White House next week? Viktor Orban, who is a uh, populist, anti-democratic leader of Hungary. Guess who was stiffed this week by the Secretary of State, Angela Merkel, when he decided the Secretary to go from Finland to Iraq and, and cancel a meeting with the most important democratic leader of Europe. In those four areas, alliances, trade, immigration, immigration slash refugees, and democracy, the president is operating in a way that's entirely inconsistent with the Republican Party leadership in Congress and with the American people in polls. I say he's an aberration. Any successor of either party will govern differently. Stick, sticking to the word aberration, um, for a moment, if you look at all the sort of headline foreign policy crises going on right now, whether it's you know the Venezuela situation and Vice President Pence saying all options are on the table, whether um, you know it's the Iran situation, the USS Abraham Lincoln's just been sent there to the to the region and a bunch of B-52 bombers, um, whether it's North Korea resuming short-range missile testing and hinting it might lift the moratorium on longer range missile testing, or indeed the trade dispute with China. There are two words with each of these crises that bother people, that, that, that concern people the most, uh, that generate most fear. And those two words are not Donald Trump. They are John Bolton. Um, talk, talk a little bit, if, if you will, about the role John Bolton is playing in this administration, Jane. Well, um I don't know him well. Uh, the Burns boys may know him well. I don't. I, I know him by reputation. I've met him. I actually think he's playing less of a role than we think because Donald Trump's top advisor is Donald Trump. And I think there was an instance this week when, uh, and probably last week too, where Bolton was overruled or ignored. Uh, at least Bolton, I would say this. Bolton is a hawk. He is a hard right foreign policy ideologue, but he has a consistent strategy, and he knows how to link A to B to C to D. I think Donald Trump's foreign policy is inconsistent. You know, he really wants to be friends with some of these people like Viktor Orban, go figure, or Kim Jong-un, uh, or Vladimir Putin. Um, there may be a story there that we still don't fully understand. I, I don't know that. But uh, those are the guys he wants to be close to, and it really doesn't matter what foreign policy you put around it. I mean, here is Kim Jong-un sticking his thumb in Donald Trump's eye by testing short-range missiles, which it's true can't hit us, but they certainly can hit South Korea and destabilize uh, the, the, our, our Asian allies. I think we still have allies, Nick. I'm, I'm wondering, but I think we do. And, and so here, here is that going on. Uh, we, by pulling out of the JCPOA, whether you loved it or not, uh, I liked it because I thought it contained the worst part, and there are many bad parts of Iran's foreign policy. By pulling out of it, and again by uh, trying this uh, very extreme oil embargo against Iran, we are goading Iran into resuming uh, its centrifuge production, et cetera, et cetera. And it had, and, and, and we all know this, a reasonably capable nascent nuke industry. So I'm just saying, 
John Bolton may say, let's make war on Iran and let's make war on North Korea, but I actually think the coherence of his view is, to me, and this may sound really bad, but I think it is less bad than a quirky, inconsistent foreign policy where things are not connected and where policies change on a dime. And I'll just say two more things. Number one, the announcement of the pullout from Syria which surprised everybody. Brett McGurk was at the Wilson Center the next day, and I said, so Brett, how many people supported that? And he went, zero. Uh, that was one. The second thing is our policy in Venezuela may, may please the, the anti-Cuba voters in, in Florida, but what is it? We're goading people uh, to support regime change. How do you think Kim Jong-un hears that one, or the leaders in Iran? Uh, we're goading people to support re regime change without giving them real tools. And I don't think there is a chance, could be wrong, but I don't think there's a chance we're going to engage militarily on behalf of the, uh, the, 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 the Guaido forces in Venezuela. Okay, so both, both Ben and Nick, you, you've, you've worked with John Bolton um, for considerable lengths of time in the State Department. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm, you know better than anybody the knowledge, the sort of Cheney-esque knowledge he has of how the system works, the interagency system and so forth. Do you, do you, think, um, do you think we're underestimating the degree to well, which he can influence events here? I mean, in, in my experience, I think it's a big mistake to underestimate John Bolton. He's very smart. Um, he's very hard ideologically. He's very agile bureaucratically. Um, in my experience, he's a paleoconservative, not a neoconservative, in the sense that his view is that you know, the best way to, for America to promote its interest in the world is through a form of muscular unilateralism, that we're kind of like Gulliver and we've been tied down by the Lilliputians, our allies and in international institutions, and it's best to break free of them. Um, it's, it's not a point of view that I agree with in any way, um, but it's one that you shouldn't underestimate. I mean, the only other thing I'd say about John Bolton is, at least in my experience, he'll rarely stab anybody in the back. It'll usually be right in the chest, um, bureaucratically. Um, so he's a formidable person. Nick, do you have scars in your back or I in your front? I still have the scars <laughs> in my back. But um, I think we should point out that Bill and I are not brothers. Um, we are both, we were both career foreign service officers, very proud members of our diplomatic corps. Um, I think we entered the Foreign Service the same year. Uh, we served in some of the same jobs, not simultaneously. Um, and I really recommend Bill's book to you, uh, Back Channel. I think it's one of the finest diplomatic memoirs that we've seen from an American in many, many years. It's a very thoughtful look at what's happened to us and how we should think about our interests. So I, I hope you all run out and buy it. I'm not his brother, so I can say that. Um, I would say about John Bolton very much what Bill said. Uh, John is very smart. John is a patriotic person. He wants what's best for America. He's very energetic. I think Bill's right. He's agile bureaucratically. Uh, I have rarely agreed with him. And I would say that if he's on your side in a situation like Venezuela, where frankly the Trump administration has the right policy, Maduro should go, 54 countries agree with us, but we're trying to lead the parade, and in a place like Venezuela, you might want to have a Latin American country lead the parade, not John Bolton and Donald Trump. On North Korea, we're in the right and North Korea's in the wrong. It's not President Trump's fault that Kim Jong-un is an international nuclear outlaw. 
but again, um, I, I think that there's been a disconnect between President Trump, I imagine, and the Secretary of State and John Bolton on how to play Kim Jong-un because I thought the President was right to go meet him in Singapore and try diplomacy, but there's been nothing that's been produced. So now we need to go back to leverage and coalition building. And that's not been the strong suit, Ed, of this administration. I think, I think Bill and I served in every administration from Carter on, and Bill served President Obama, I did not. But every administration has tried to create coalitions yeah. or, or work on our allies, you know, broaden the base. And this administration seems to be highly unilateralist and doesn't work well in the modern world. Yeah, I mean, I, I was just going to add, I mean, I think what's animated presidents that we've worked for over both parties has been, you know, a foreign policy with all the mistakes that we made um, over the years that was animated by a sense of enlightened self-interest. In other words, the notion that American self-interest can best be promoted in the world when we try to widen and invest in the circle of countries who share many of those same interests. And, you know, that's in many ways the most glaring departure, I think, at least over the last two and a half years. I, and could I just add one thing? Because I agree with Nick that President Trump was right to focus on North Korea. I think that was right. And I think there are serious, horrible issues, of, you know, about the Maduro government in Venezuela. And I also think that Iran's malign behavior outside of the contours of the JCPOA did not improve. That was uh, an aspiration of the Obama government, but it didn't turn out. So, I, you know, yes, check a box. Good issues to pick. I'm just saying that the, the disconnect in the policy, the, the, the lack of strategy in, in, in Bill's book he talks about, uh, playing the long ball and then points out we're only playing the short ball is a huge problem. And the one thing I would say about Bolton, whom I, I know less well than you both do, is he has a coherent view. So there is the possibility of kind of engaging that view and hopefully tempering it. Uh, I, I want to get onto China in a moment, but I have to ask you, given recent developments, the removal of the oil waiver for Iran's five main export markets, China, Japan, India, Turkey, and one other. Um, the declaration of the Revolutionary Guards as a terrorist organization, the new sanctions that were announced a couple of days ago, and of course the USS Abraham um, Lincoln going to the Gulf. Um, what are the chances that either accidentally or, you know, picking up from the Bolton conversation, not accidentally, there is actually going to be some kind of conflict here between the US and Iran? I mean, I think, I think the, the odds of that um, are clearly growing. I think what we're embarked upon now is a particular form of coercive diplomacy, which is all about the coercive part and not at all about the <laughs> diplomatic part, in the sense that you know, we're pursuing a policy of maximum pressure in response to lots of really dangerous Iranian behavior, as Jane said. But it's maximum pressure that, at least in my view, is not tethered to any realistic aims or any active diplomatic channel. Um, and so the problem is we're making a very risky bet that that maximum pressure um, is going to produce a better outcome than President Trump inherited from the last administration. Um, and, and I think, in a sense, while the president continues to insist that the goal here is a better nuclear deal, the facts you know, tell a different story. The facts would suggest that the real aim here is to produce, through the unilateral reimposition of American pressure, either the capitulation or the implosion of that regime. And I just think that's unrealistic, and that carries with it 
the dangers of collisions where the Trump administration and hardliners in the theocratic regime in Tehran, of which there is no shortage, become kind of mutual enablers climbing up an escalatory ladder together. I, I would just add to that, that during the Cold War, I think most people believed that was a, there were two teams, both of whom were rational, by their definition of rational. I actually think most of the world actors who head governments today, even Kim Jong-un, are rational uh, by his lights. Having nukes is his uh, insurance policy against regime change. I think that's how the leaders in Iran are going to see it, too. Uh, who's irrational? Uh, rogue groups, uh, non-state actors. And let's understand that if we're talking about the Middle East, they're all over the place. And they can, at least most people think they can. I don't have any uh, recent classified information about this. But they might get their hands on tactical nukes from Pakistan, for example, which are transferred, this is publicly reported, by surface transportation. And Pakistan, the government, is somewhat cracking down on, on the, the terrorist organizations inside of Pakistan. That's a good thing that Trump has achieved. But not all of them, not yet. And so what I'm saying, Edward, is the possibility of uh, uh, accidental war, um, which is started by a non-rational, non-state actor, is real, especially in the Middle East. Nick. I would just um, say I, I am worried. I don't think the risk of uh, war is high, but it's a lot higher now than it was a couple of months back. I think the administration has not given, so there are two problems. One is the nuclear issue and the other is Iran's activities mm -hmm. in the region. We are far worse off out of the nuclear deal than we were in the nuclear deal. Whatever you think of it, it, was, it had tied the Iranians up and it dismantled the uranium and enrichment processes that lead to fissile material and a nuclear weapon. Uh, now the, uh, the Iranians may now be tempted because we're out we're sanctioning countries like your country. We're threatening to sanction British companies doing business with Iran. Um, that's going to encourage the Iranians and the harder elements in the Iranian government, the IRGC, perhaps to go back to nuclear research. And that brings the nuclear um, issue back to full boil. It's not in our interest. And I, I don't think the administration on the second issue, which is a real issue, where the Iranians are a problem in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, even Gaza, there's no coherent way that the administration is trying to deal with that except by threats. And it seems to me that we can deter Iran. We're much more powerful. Um, and of course, we should defend an American vessel, hypothetically, if it's attacked in the Gulf. But we shouldn't be looking for a fight when we still have a lot we need to do in Iraq, as well as Afghanistan and the wider region. So um, wherever Mike Pompeo goes in the world, um, and whenever Vice President Pence speaks, uh, and you know, every other day when Trump tweets, uh, China as the new evil empire, in the words of Senator Tom Cotton, is, is, is there in the script somewhere. It might not be those exact words, but it's, it's, it's along those lines. Um, and I've been struck, and I'd like to hear from each of you, by how in the last nine to 12 months in Washington in general, not just talking about the Secretary of State, the Vice President and the President, there has been a, a growing consensus that we are in a new Cold War with China. 
Um, is this a wise Cold War for us to decide we're in? Um, and are we in it? Jane. Well, um, our new defense strategy uh, describes China as a strategic competitor. I like that term. Uh, I don't know who coined it, and I have no idea if President Trump has ever used it or John Bolton, but I like it. And I think that... Not, not an adversary, a strategic <laughs> rival. No, a strategic competitor. That means not... not uh, you know, maybe it means a frenemy. We don't have to go into the language games. But there are ways to manage an emerged China. It's no longer emerging, and we were naive to think uh, at the end of the Cold War, the old one with Russia, that it would follow our economic model and be just like us and, and love us. I think we were naive to think that. China has a completely different economic model and it does play the long ball. It, it doesn't get caught up in two-year campaign cycles. So uh, I think we were naive about that. Now what do we do? Well, 90, almost 96 years young, Henry Kissinger, uh, who did, uh, I think more than any of the rest of us, uh, have, have a lot to do with the, the thawing of our relationship with China, uh, says that there are things we should confront China about, and I think Trump has named some of them. I think stealing intellectual property, hacking into uh, you know, U.S. businesses and, gov and our government are, are dreadful and have to be restrained. But I think, on the other hand, that the economic competition with China and long-range goals, and Henry would say this, need to be managed. The way he suggests it is, let's, let's define a few concepts where we can work together. That's the way he puts it, work together on a solution. And so I hope we're not in a new Cold War. I don't think that advantages us. I don't know if it advantages them, but I know it doesn't advantage us. I, I think we need to be in a strategic comp competition where we confront and we work together at the same time. Um, Nick mentioned uh, my country, and um, Pompeo was there. I was either this week or late last week, and he made a very strong statement that if Britain didn't exclude Huawei from its 5G networks, then American intelligence sharing, the Five Eyes, all that kind of stuff would be in jeopardy. That's a very, very, it, it might well be merited. I'm not commenting on the merits, but that's a very, very serious statement to make. This sounds like an adversary, not a competitor. Yeah, I mean, oh, I, I think the term strategic competition, as Jane just suggested, is probably the most apt one. Strategic competition with China is the biggest single geopolitical challenge for Americans as far out into the 21st century as I can see. Um, I think the question is how you go about managing that competition, which sometimes will be adversarial. I think the president is right to push back against predatory Chinese trade and investment practices in a sense that's overdue. Um, but I, I have two concerns about the way in which we're doing this now. The first is tactical. I mean, logically, what you'd want to do is make common cause with lots of other players in the world who share those same concerns about China, like Japan and the European Union. So rather than start second and third front trade conflicts with them over steel and aluminum, you'd want to focus on your priority, which is China. The second concern is that that essentially defensive part of a long-term strategy for dealing with China, pushing back against those economic practices, it seems to me has to be accompanied by a more affirmative vision of what's the kind of Asia 
that we and lots of players from India all the way across Asia want to see. In other words, an Asia in which China's rise doesn't come at the expense of everybody else's prosperity and security, which is focused less on containing China's rise and more, I think, on shaping the environment into which China rises. And the United States has huge assets, alliances, partnerships, and institutions like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the big trade agreement, which would have knit together 40% of the global economy across Asia. Those are the kinds of things that shape Chinese incentives and disincentives over time. And Nick, I mean, another way of looking at this is the Made in China 2025 goal that Xi Jinping has, which is to emulate America in artificial intelligence by 2025, but to dominate by 2030. You know, that doesn't sound like your average industrial policy. Uh, that sounds like a national security goal, and therefore, it's a red line for Xi Jinping, clearly. Some of the reneging on the details of, of which we don't know, but some of the reneging, I'm, I assume, on this trade deal is to do with pledges around technology transfer. Um, but if it's a red line for Xi Jinping, then isn't it a national security priority for us too? This should be a Sputnik moment. A lot of people have used that term. A wake-up call for the United States because we're if you think about it, we're contesting China on two big grounds. One is a battle of technology. So whether it's AI or last presentation, machine learning, quantum computing, biotech, um, these are the technologies that will dominate the global economy, but also that will produce the next generation of military weapons. We don't want to lose out to China, be number two or three in that competition. So we have to compete. They have a built-in advantage. They can go to any Chinese engineer at a research university or company and say, we want your IP, we want your blueprint, you're working for us. We can't appropriately enough. We cannot command Google, Amazon, Apple to work with us. We need to work it out consensually. The second battle is the battle of ideas. They believe deeply in the authoritarian model. We believe deeply in our liberal, pluralistic, democratic model. They've got a leader out there campaigning, and, and Putin is the same way, that their models, authoritarianism is the way forward. Our guy is embracing the anti-democratic uh, populace, and he's pushing away Angela Merkel, Theresa May, Emmanuel Macron, Justin Trudeau. We need to contest both. Last point. We're commemorating this spring uh, the 40th anniversary of our, our modern diplomatic relationship with China, Jimmy Carter, Deng Xiaoping. For all those 40 years, we've been telling ourselves, Republican and Democratic governments, we're engaging China, but we're also obviously going to compete where we have to compete. I think you're right, Ed, in your question. Both of our political parties, somewhere in the last 12 to 16 months, have decided China's a competitor and we're just going to compete, and there's no sense of cooperation. I'm leading with my chin here. We have to compete on trade. We have to compete to remain the predominant military power. We want to be that power in the Indo-Pacific. We have to compete in the battle of ideas and battle of technology, but if we want to do something about climate change, we're the two largest carbon emitters. If you want to stabilize the global economy, we're the two of the three most important economies. If you don't have a balance between competition and, and cooperation, you don't have much of a strategy. And I, I fear that I will just name Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the left, and 
not so much President Trump, because he really hasn't articulated this, but his advisors and his cabinet on the right are pushing an almost an entirely competitive agenda, and I, I wonder about the wisdom of that. So we need cooperation. We need to be frenemies. Uh, we, have to, we have to rely on a pretty subtle, multitasking kind of diplomacy. And I want to get into a little bit into the book that Bill wrote. You used um, a term, unilateral diplomatic disarmament of what's happening, um, that there are these vacancies, people aren't applying to join the Foreign Service, there are no ambassadors in Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, um, and other many other countries. Um, if you look at countries where the Trump administration has ambassadors in place, let's look at my continent, well, my continent of origin, Europe. Um, you look at Woody Johnson in London. Um, you look at Rick Grenell in Germany. I don't know much about what Callista Gingrich is up with, with Pope Francis. Maybe she probably sees him as a hopeless liberal. But most of these big, most of these big diplomatic jobs, you've got ambassadors playing very undiplomatic roles. I mean, Woody Johnson's a really good example. Undercutting the Theresa May government at every opportunity. When was the last time that happened? With Joe Kennedy, maybe, in, in, during the appeasement era? Um, you've got Rick Grenell very aggressively undercutting the Merkel government um, in Germany. In fact, the only place I can think of in Europe where you have a Trump ambassador being nice to the host government is David Kornstein in Hungary, in Budapest. Very, very flattering about Viktor Orban, who, as you said, Nick, is visiting the White House next week. Clearly, this is all an aberration. Um, how quickly can you, rep if it is an aberration, clearly, how, how quickly can you repair it um, in the post-Trump era? And all, I'd like all of you to answer, but maybe, Bill, you can, sure. we'll start with you. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's going to take a lot longer to fix than it's taken to break um, in terms of American diplomacy. And, and I'd start this with, a, you know, a note of self-criticism. You know, while, you know, there are lots of individual professional American diplomats, I'm sitting next to one of them here, who can be incredibly innovative and entrepreneurial and courageous. As an institution, the State Department is rarely accused of being too agile or too full of initiative. So there are things the State Department itself has to do, I think, to become a more nimble 21st century player. But I do think if you look at both the tangible and intangible indicators in the Trump era, it's a pretty depressing picture. For the third year in a row, the Trump White House has proposed historic cuts in the budget, not just for diplomacy, the State Department, but also for foreign assistance as well. A budget for both diplomacy and development that's 19 times lower than the budget for the US military and the Pentagon. And that's, I think, a foolish imbalance, much as you need military leverage to get any place in diplomacy. But you also see, as Ed mentioned, a huge number of senior vacancies in the State Department, ambassadorial posts overseas, you see the painfully slow progress that we've made over the last 35 or 40 years to create a diplomatic service that looks more like the country we represent. When Nick and I entered the Foreign Service, most people looked like us. Nine out of 10 American diplomats were white, only a quarter were women. You know, over the last 35 or 40 years, you know, we've moved closer to gender balance, although woefully inadequate at senior levels. 
those trend lines have been reversed over the last couple of years. And there's also, I think, the, the particularly pernicious practice of going after individual career officers just because they worked on complicated issues in the last administration. Those are the tangibles. The intangible one is simply to note something President Trump uh, said last year publicly. He was asked about all those senior vacancies in the State Department, whether that concerned him. He said, not really, because I'm the only one who matters. That's diplomacy as an exercise in narcissism. You know, that's not a diplomacy of strategy and of institutions. I certainly agree with the last point, but just uh, uh, let me suggest that uh, we have uh, a lot of Trump appointees, political appointees as ambassadors, and then we have a lot of career foreign service ambassadors, and many of them are extraordinary, and they're still there. Uh, some have taken retirement, some actually aged out, but there are a lot of extraordinary ambassadors, and I was just thinking, are there any political appointees that are competent, and I would suggest John Huntsman, sure. for example, in Russia is pretty darn good. So Kay it's Bailey Hutchison. And Kay Bailey Hutchison in uh, Brussels, a former member of the United States Senate. Uh, go figure. Uh, who's doing a good job under very, very difficult circumstances. So, so there's that. Uh, I'd also uh, suggest that the uh, Trump budget, not just for uh, the State Department is likely dead on arrival. This has been a tradition, certainly in the last three years, and that Lindsey Graham, I am not making this up, who chairs the Foreign Ops uh, Subcommittee, uh, Foreign Operations Subcommittee of the Senate Appropriations Committee, said publicly uh, last week at the Wilson Center that uh, he's going to restore the funding because he thinks that foreign aid and diplomacy really matter and that they're better tools, he said this, than using military, the military option as a first option. Nick, I'm going to ask you a slightly different question, because I, uh, but you're, you're welcome to, to answer that one, because we're going to Q&A in a minute, but it's a question I want to ask before we do. Very quickly, we always naturally as humans fight the last war, and the last war in terms of American democracy is Russia and Facebook. And so we're worried about Russia, Facebook, next election. My question to you is, should we be worried about uh, China, WhatsApp, um, you know, or Israel through some other social medium? Should we be looking, or China, you know, whatever it might be, other foreign powers seeing what happened in 2016, interfering in the next election, particularly since we've had no real federal action to strengthen Americans, America's election infrastructure. Then we will go to Q&A, but I wanted to ask you that. And the answer is yes. I mean, if you look at the countries that have capacity that could attack us via cyber means, certainly Russia has shown that it's willing to do that. China, North Korea, Iran are all such countries. But in the modern age, it could be a collection of individuals. It could be uh, a hacker ring. It could be ideologically based or commercially based, and so you've got to watch out for them too. And going back to alliances, we're not the only country that's been attacked by cyber means. In 2017, the Dutch, the French, and the Germans all held national elections, all attacked. And so what we really ought to be doing is working with our allies and friends and trying to raise our collective Western defenses and appropriately, when necessary, go on offense ourselves um, as a government and as an alliance. And I do think the president, if you think about the president's responsibility, one of the very top is defend the country. And when he got on that phone call with President Putin 90 minutes 
uh, last week. I think it's good that he talks to President Putin. He should be talking to him. But you have to raise this issue of Russia attacking our election, and the president didn't, and I think that's malpractice. Last thing I'd say, Ed, I know you want to go to Q&A. There is a silver lining on this story of State Department funding. I agree with everything that Bill and Jane said. Yesterday, the House voted out its foreign affairs budget, and they restored full funding. And it's interesting, it's a collection of Democrats, Jane's former colleagues, and Republican committee chairs in the Senate and House who are coalescing to defend our assistance and our State Department funding against the one person in the government, maybe two, Donald Trump and Mick Mulvaney, who want to cut the budget. So that's, that's good news. We're seeing the Congress stand up and block the president here. That is a rare, upbeat note um, for us to move to um, Q&A. If you could, very brief, no statements, just questions as a gentleman here, um, and then a, 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 a lady there. So um, just brief questions if you could. You've all made a powerful case for no long ball, no short ball. In the next 18 months before the election, what keeps you up most at night, and is there any good news beyond a few inadvertent appointments by our despot in chief? Sleeplessness, who wants to take it? Sure, I mean, I think there's a lot of good news. I mean, in the following sense, you know, if you look at over the last few decades, hundreds of millions of people around the world lifted out of extreme poverty into the beginnings of a middle class, advances in science, technology, human health, um, medicine that I think are enormously important. Um, but so I'm not trying to ruin all of your digestion, you know, talking about all the depressing realities out here. I think my concern just as an American is that I really do believe that we have a window in front of us, you know, within which we, no longer the singular dominant player on the landscape, there, there, there's a competition out there today, but we still have a better hand to play, I think, than our major power rivals. We have an opportunity within that window to help reshape an international order before it gets reshaped for us. And that window isn't going to stay open forever, and so that's my sense of urgency. Well, I'm, I've already mentioned the chance of accidental war, which I think is real. But the other thing, very personal to me, is that the decline of, of the U.S. Congress as a voice in foreign and defense policy has, is happening in front of our eyes. Congress actually roused itself, in addition to restoring the foreign aid budget, let's see if that holds, uh, to vote against U.S. involvement in Yemen a few weeks ago, but it couldn't achieve a veto-proof majority, and so that didn't stick. But that's the one thing I can think of recently where Congress spoke up in a coherent way, involved the public in the conversation, and that's the point of Congress. It's not just uh, 535 people, but it's the people who elected them having a forum in which to express their views about foreign policy, and that's missing. Nick, we're going to roll, roll it over, but you can bring in the question. Um, there's a, a, a lady there. What's your view about the Middle East proposal that is coming up in July, I believe, from Kushner Inc., I think, right? Nick? Um, well, we haven't seen the, the plan in detail, at least I haven't. But if it comes out that the plan uh, essentially uh, says that the two, it doesn't back up the notion of a two-state settlement that we've held to since at least 1967, that the is Israel, of course, should, have, should live in peace, but the Palestinians should have a state beside it uh, with a capital in Jerusalem. And if it comes on top of moving our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which was a major mistake, we've lost influence, 
uh, and recognizing the annexation by Israel of the Golan Heights, which made the Russians happy because they just annexed Crimea and we were attacking them for violating the UN Charter. If you cut off all aid to the Palestinians, Bill, and, Bill worked for a long time in the Middle East. One of my early jobs uh, 35 years ago was to manage our aid program to the Palestinians in the West Bank. Uh, money well spent, money on education, money trying to help the Palestinians be, have productive businesses, to live in peace alongside Israel. This administration has been so one-sided, I can't see it being an effective arbiter, and I would think that this such a plan is absolutely dead in arrival that the Palestinians, the, even the Gulf Arabs, the Saudis, will not support it. Many Israelis will not support it. Many members of the Knesset will not support it. So I fear that it's, a, it's, it's been a waste and we have depreciated our credibility with the Palestinians and frankly we've created problem, problems for those Israelis who want to see a future of peace with the Palestinians. So dead on arrival I think was a pretty clear answer that. We have time for one, one more, possibly two if it's a very rapid question. The, um, the lady there who, oh, did you put your hand up? No, you didn't, sorry. There's a gentleman right at the back, to the right. <clears throat> Good afternoon and thank you for your presentation. Uh, my name is Wallace Ford, a professor at Medgarvis College in the City University of New York. I've enjoyed the presentation, but the one area of the world I did not hear any discussion about uh, has to do with Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, it is uh, the fastest growing population in the world, the site of many, many major resources. And of course, China is all over uh, Africa, as a matter of fact, and um, as well as Russia to a lesser extent. But I'd like to hear your thoughts with respect to the U.S. engagement or involvement or policy with respect to Africa, what it ought to look like. Uh, good question, thank you, and that was my fault. Um, each of you like to say something about the Afri role of Africa in the First, I want to say that on the Israel-Palestine issue, read Bill Burns' brilliant op-ed in, in this week's Washington Post about the implications of, of the death of the two-state solution, if it comes to that, and his three reasons why it may not come to that. Let, let us pray. Um, on Africa, you're right that it is the fastest growing part of the earth. It is hugely hit by two awful things. One is climate change. There are a gigantic number of climate refugees trying to get out of Africa. And the other is terrorism uh, and uh, the destabilized Middle East. And I don't think or I don't see a Trump policy on Africa. I actually think there is an area where both Bush 43 and Obama had pretty good policies. And meanwhile, as you point out, China is eating our lunch. The Belt and Road Initiative is all over the ports of Africa. Yeah, I mean, all I would add is I think it's a huge mistake for any U.S. administration to neglect the significance of Africa. Just as you suggest, it's a continent whose population is going to double from one billion to two billion by the middle of this century with lots of challenges, you know, of insecurities in water and health and food, but lots of possibilities as well. I, I think, as Jane said, you know, one of the smartest things we've done since the Marshall Plan in terms of assistance was the PEPFAR initiative that President George W. Bush launched, which, you know, devoted billions of dollars to smart, committed African leaderships and civil society leaders and has helped bring that continent and most of the rest of the world to the brink of an AIDS-free generation. 
that ought to be a reminder of what you know American attention and well-targeted resources can help produce in a really important part of the world. So, Bill, I'm getting messages like "wrap up," "stop," "take your own life." Um, so, Nick, if you could, if you could give a 15 to 20 second answer uh, on Africa. We, we'll end on a positive note. Poverty alleviation in Africa, historic levels. HIV, now more a chronic disease and a deadly illness for many Africans. Huge advances on malaria and polio. Malaria vaccine being tested this summer. Tremendous economic growth in some parts of the continent. Capable governments in many parts of the continent. There are negative trend lines, we can go through them, but I think it's one part of the world, young continent, that with a lot of effort, um, we should be there with them. And Bush, George W. Bush and Barack Obama had a strategy. I feel we've lost it. And we have more to offer them ultimately than the Chinese do. We have our liberal democratic values to offer. The Chinese don't. Well, on, the, on that positive note, join me in thanking a wonderful panel. Thank you so much.